Hello, listeners. My name is Ronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. Last year, something unexplainable happened to a seven-year-old boy who attended a public elementary school in Palmdale, California. The boy transferred to the school in January of 2016, and his mother, Christiana Zavella, wrote a Bible verse and placed it on top of his lunch for encouragement. Each day, the boy showed his friends the Bible verse that his mother wrote for him and even read it out loud for his friends to hear. This happened daily during lunch, and the boy and his friends began to look forward to the Bible verse each day. More students began to gather around the boy during lunch to hear the Bible verse, and some of them asked him for a photocopy of the Bible verse. So, the boy began to hand out a photocopy of the daily Bible verse to the friends that wanted it. That's when something unexplainable occurred. The school banned the child from handing out the Bible verses during lunch. The school prohibited the boy from handing out the Bible verse in school, but allowed him to hand it out to the students after classes were finished outside of the school gate. The boy and his parents complied with the rules of the school and handed out copies of the Bible verses only after school and outside of the school gate. About 15 students began to gather at the gate and take home copies of the Bible verses. That is when something even more surprising happened. The principal decided to implement a complete ban on the Bible verse sharing. The principal told the boy and his father to move far away from the school to a public sidewalk to hand out the Bible verses. The boy and his parents complied with the principal's demand and began sharing the Bible verses on the public sidewalk. But that same night, the L.A. County Sheriff made a visit to the boy's house. The deputy sheriff said that he had been sent by the school and they told the parents that the school was worried that someone might be offended by the Bible verses and they were ordered to stop handing out the Bible verses.
what happened in Palmdale, California was unexplainable. The school and the county forbid someone from sharing a copy of a Bible verse that others wanted. It's hard to understand the school and county's reason for prohibiting the boy and his family. The reason was that somebody might be offended by the Bible verses. If that was a good enough reason for the boy and his family to stop what they were doing, then there are so many more things in this world that must be prohibited, such as the multiple billboards that we pass by when we drive on the highway, advertising alcohol, tobacco, and now even marijuana. Things like this can really harm others. I wouldn't want my child to see these kinds of advertisements because it can do them real harm. How about food advertisement pamphlets that they hand out? Is what they are advertising actually safe for everyone? Of course not. Some foods can be more harm to some and lead to a fatality. How about the flyers that they pass out at the gay and lesbian rallies? I don't even really need to expand on how harmful that can be to others. Therefore, prohibiting someone from handing out Bible verses because it is causing them harm or offending others is not just. If that was the sole reason for stopping them, then there is no possible way for anyone to hand out anything in this world. Why does the world tell us that sharing a Bible verse with others can offend or harm them? What kind of harm can a Bible verse cause? One of the traits that a Bible verse God's words has is the ability to make you realize your sins. Romans chapter 7 verses 7 to 10 says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment, produce in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. When we do not live according to the standard of God, then we do not know what sin is. We can even make that excuse when we sin. However, when the Word of God teaches us what sin is, then we no longer have that excuse. Some people may think that maybe it was better when we didn't know. That's because they believe that realizing their own sins can cause themselves harm. But that is a very wrong way to think. It is not harm to realize that you are a sinner. It is actually a benefit. It is not a curse. It is grace. The day that you find out that you are a sinner is your first step towards heaven. Jesus, friend of sinners, We have strayed so far away We cut down people in your name But the sword was never ours to swing 
Jesus, friend of sinners, the truth's become so hard to see. The world is on their way to you, but they're tripping over me. Always looking around and never looking up, I'm so double-minded. A plank-eyed saint with dirty hands and a heart divided. Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners, open our eyes to the world at the end of our pointing fingers. Let our hearts be led by mercy. Help us reach with open hearts and open doors. Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners, Break our hearts for what breaks yours hey, yeah. Yeah. Jesus, friend of sinners The one who's riding in the sand May the righteous turn away And the stones fall from their hands Help us to Nobody knows what we're for, only what we're against when we judge the wounded. What if we put down our signs, crossed over the lines and love like you did? Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners, open our eyes to the world at the end of our pointing fingers. Let our hearts be. Open doors Oh Jesus, friend of sinners Break our hearts for what breaks yours You love every lost cause You reach for the outcast For the leper and the lame There's a reason that you came Jesus, 
Coming up next is Sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Today's topic is the justice of God based on Psalm chapter 146 verses 1 through 10. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Timothy. Tonight's scripture comes from Psalm 146, verse 1 through 10. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed is he whose hope is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them, the Lord who remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever, your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Many people accuse the Bible of being a document that promotes oppression and injustice. Don't believe that's true at all. Christians often do. But that's another sermon and another text to address that. But this text tells us that God is a God of justice. You know, Micah chapter 6 verse 8 uh, summarizes what it means to be uh, a follower of God. It says, uh, very famous, it says, what does the Lord your God require of you but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God? Okay. So what does it mean to walk humbly with God? To do justice and love mercy looks like two things. It's probably not. Probably the mercy is the heart, it's the motivation, the dynamic, and the justice is the life that you're supposed to live. And therefore, Micah 6.8 actually summarizes what it means to be a follower of God by saying, do justice. What is that? Why is that so important? This passage will help us. Let's look at it under three headings. The life of justice, the God of justice, and how to live a life of justice before God. The life of justice, the God of justice, and how to live a life of justice before God. First, the life of justice. Now, the word justice doesn't appear in this English translation, but it absolutely is here. When I told you uh, Micah 6.8 says, do justice, 200 times that word justice shows up. It's the Hebrew word mishpat, and it shows up more times than you think in the Bible because when you're reading the English Bible, you'll find that this word is translated in very different ways in different texts. Sometimes it's translated, uphold the cause. Sometimes it's translated, righteous. And sometimes it's translated, justice. And in verse 7, right in the middle, it says, he upholds the cause of the oppressed. And that word actually means, or it's actually two words, he executes justice. He does justice. He makes justice for the oppressed. What does that mean? If it's 200 times in the Bible, it's an important theme. What does it mean to do justice? And to do justice means to give people their due. To give people their due 
Now, essentially, there's two parts to that. There's two ways of giving people their due. One part is negative. One part is when people are doing something wrong, you need to stop them. And to stop them and to capture them and to punish them is to do justice. And if, they, if you just let people just go on doing bad things and they never are punished, you're not doing justice, right? That's why, for example, um, Leviticus 24.22 says, you should have the same mishpat for the foreigner as the native. Do you see what that's saying? It means the same rule of law for the foreigner as the native. It means same punishments for the same crimes. It should, there shouldn't be any partiality. Same mishpat. So mishpat means, in some cases, it means to condemn and judge and punish the evildoer. But justice has another side. It's not just, uh, doing justice is not just simply punishing those who wrong people. Doing justice also means to give the oppressed and the weak and the vulnerable their due. So, for example, Proverbs 31.9 says, defend the rights of the poor and needy. And uh, Nicholas Wolderstorff, who's written a book on justice or two, says that if you read the Bible and you look up the word mishpat, almost not every place, but most of the places, so many of the places where the word mishpat shows up, you've got four groups of people that are mentioned. The widow, the orphan, the alien or the immigrant, and the poor. The widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. He calls these the quartet of the vulnerable. And these are people who are weak, they're vulnerable, they're easily uh, trampled upon and harmed. And uh, one part of doing justice, according to the Bible, is punish the wrongdoer. See? The Lord frustrates the ways of the wicked, verse 9. But the other thing we're supposed to do, as you can see, is to lift up the oppressed, is to care for the people who have been uh, the, the vulnerable, the most vulnerable classes of society. Now, if you want to get an idea of what that means... You go to the book of Job. In Job, uh, Job, of course, in the, so you know the setting of Job is that uh, Job believes he's suffering unjustly. So at one point, he looks at his life and he goes through how he's living, and he talks to God about the fact that he lives a life of justice. And notice what that means to Job. In uh, Job 29, he says, I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist him. I made the widow's heart to sing. Justice was my robe and my turban, mishpat. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was father to the needy. I took up the case of the immigrant. You hear that? He says, justice was my robe and turban, which means it's the way in which I live my life. Every day I was doing justice. What does it mean to do justice? It means to care for, look, the poor, the fatherless, the widow, the immigrant. But what does that mean? It's not just to condemn the wrongdoer. It's to lift up and to care for the weak and the vulnerable. What does that mean? It means two things. First of all, it means you must not harm the weak and the vulnerable. You mustn't kill them. You mustn't maim them. You mustn't imprison them wrongly. Notice, by the way, it says in verse 7, the Lord sets prisoners free. Now, that cannot mean that God sets all prisoners free because some prisoners ought to be in prison. And if they weren't in prison, that wouldn't be just, right? But what is it saying? It's saying there's many, many people in the world and many people in history and many people today have been killed, imprisoned, enslaved, tortured just because they were getting in the way of some powerful person's interest. And that's wrong. To harm the weak and the vulnerable is unjust. But 
It's not just unjust to harm the weak and the vulnerable, it's also unjust to ignore them. When you ignore the needs of the widow, the orphan, the alien, and the uh, poor, when you ignore their needs, you just don't take care of them, you just don't notice them. That's not called a lack of charity in the Bible, that's called a lack of justice. You want to hear? Job goes on in Job 31 and says, If I have denied justice to my men servants and my maidservants, listen to this list. If I've denied justice to my men servants and maidservants when they had a grievance against me. Two, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless. Three, if I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or a needy man without a garment and have not warmed him with the fleece from my sheep. Four, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing I had influence in court, then let my arm fall from the shoulder. Let it be broken off at the joint. These would be sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. Did you hear what he said? It would have been a sin to be judged. It would have been unjust if I see people without food and I don't share my food, and I see people without clothing and I don't share my fleece, my wool, my clothing. He doesn't say, oh, that's lack of charity. Charity is an option. It would be unjust. It would be a sin against God. It would be sinning against the Most High. This is pretty strong. This is really strong. It's not just a... Doing justice has a, a negative side, which is condemn the, you know, and judge the people who have done wrong. But doing justice has a positive side. It means lifting up the weak and the vulnerable, caring for them. But it doesn't just mean it's unjust to harm them. It's also unjust to ignore them. Proverbs 14.31, this is a translation by Bruce Waltke, who is an Old Testament guy, Old Testament commentator. He says, um, uh, Proverbs 14.31, he who slanders the poor scoffs at his maker, but the one who is gracious to the needy honors God. And the word scoff and slander is a word that simply means to take lightly. And what that means is if you just ignore the poor, if you take them lightly, if you do not make them important in your life, if they have no impact on how you live your life, if they have no impact on how you spend your money, if they have no impact on, on how you spend your time, you're insulting God himself. You're dishonoring God himself. So what does it mean to do justice? Would you like a little list? It's right here in verse 7, 8, and 9. Can I look at it? And I'll, let me paraphrase. Doing justice means engaging in activities like this. Feeding the hungry. It means releasing unjustly imprisoned and enslaved people. It means working with the sick, the blind. It means loving and helping the burdened, the literally burdened, who are and that's that's actually counseling and emotion, emotional support. It means literally Guarding the, the immigrant. You see where it says the Lord watches over the alien? Literally, it means to guard. It means to keep the immigrant, the refugee, the new immigrant from being exploited or hurt. Watch over. And then it also means relieving and strengthening the single-parent family, the widow and the orphan. That's doing justice. And that's the first point. Now, let me just ask you a question before moving on to the second point. Doesn't that all sound pretty liberal? All that talk about justice, we have to do out, and we have to care about the poor, and we need to share what we have with the poor. Doesn't that sound like a kind of liberal, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
address. But if we get to the places in the Bible that talk about gender, family, and sex, then it sounds incredibly conservative. And what is that point? I guess I'd like you to know, I'd like you to see that when you come to the Bible, you need to shake your mind free from human political categories of liberal, conservative. The Bible does not fit in them. And you should not be trying to read the Bible through those kinds of glasses. You need to be open to what God says you should be living like. And what God says you should be living like is really fairly different than what anybody else tells you. So first of all, we have to live a life of justice, number one. Number two, second thing we learn here is we have to live a life of justice because God is a God of justice. See, when people say caring for the poor is good ethics, Christians agree. But we go beyond that and say caring for the poor for us is not just good ethics, it's good theology. Because we, are, we, we care about the poor, we pour ourselves out for the poor, not just because we're told to do so and therefore it make, that's how good people live. We, we want to reflect the character of God, and God does this. What you have in the middle here of Psalm 146, and I, I, I want to drive this home for five minutes now, I want you to see the significance of the fact that God introduces himself as the God of all, all power, omnipotence. He always introduces himself, or he likes to. This isn't the only place he does this. He likes to introduce himself as a God of in, incredible power, who loves to use that power especially on behalf of the weak and the powerless. And so, see, he starts off by saying, Who, who's God? The maker of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. See, that's all power. But then turns around and says, who upholds the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, sets prisoners free. It depicts this God of enormous power who especially loves to use the power, his power, on behalf of the weakest and most vulnerable members of society. This isn't the only place he does that. It's not the only place he does that. In Deuteronomy 10, the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, the mighty and awesome. See, same thing. And then it says, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the alien. He gives them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Over and over and over the Bible, uh, God introduces himself and says, Who am I? I am the father for the fatherless. I am the defender of widows. Now, do you know how important that is? What do you put on a card? If you have a business card, what do you put on it? You put on the kind of the essence of what you do. Or if somebody asks me, uh, if, they're in, if I'm speaking somewhere, they, almost everybody says, uh, how should I introduce you? What do you want to be introduced as? Well, I'll tell you what the main thing I do in life. I do a lot of things, but the main thing I do out in the world is I'm the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. So wherever I go, if somebody says, how should I introduce you? I say, make it short, please. But just say, I'm the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, because that gets right to the heart of what I do. When God continually says, I'm a God who cares for the poor, I'm a God who defends the defenseless, I'm a God who cares for the alien, who loves the widows and the orphans, when he introduces himself like that, what he's saying is, this is at the very heart of what I do in the world. Now, you know how different that is than the other gods of ancient times? The other gods of ancient times always exercised their power, especially on behalf of the kings, the people at the top, the elites. That's the reason why when Naaman the Syrian heard that the God of Israel could heal his leprosy, this is in Kings, 2 Kings 5, he comes down and he goes to the king of Israel and he's got boatloads of money 
And he comes to the king of Israel and he says, I've heard that your God can heal lepers and I'm a leper. So here's your money. Give me the divine healing. (laughs) And the king of Israel tears his clothes and says, I'm sorry, our God doesn't operate the way every other God does. You don't do that. You don't come to the king to get your healing. Or, for example, in the book of uh, Numbers, uh, it's a very interesting place in Numbers 22, 23, 24, somewhere around there, where uh, the, the Israelites are coming from Israel into the promised land, and one of the kings who's lived there, the king of Moab, his name is Balak, uh, he hires a prophet of God to curse the Israelites. So he puts, it, his name was Balaam, so he puts Balaam up on a mountain, he says, now curse them because I'm going to pay you to curse them. And Balaam says, I can only say whatever God gives me to say. Well, curse them. So Balaam goes to God and he turns around and blesses them. And Balaam says, wait. And he takes them to another mountain. And he says, maybe God will let you curse them from this mountain. So he puts them in another place. And he says, I'm going to pay you. I'm going to pay you good stuff. And of course, Balaam keeps blessing them. And the reason Balaam keeps doing that is because all the other gods work this way. The, the gods of the nations work through the people at the top. The gods on the na- of the other nations work on behalf of the people at the top. It's the kings who were the mediators. It was the kings who were the ones who were put into place by the gods and so forth. But not the God of Israel. He doesn't work for the people at the top. He says, I have all power, but I love to exercise it on behalf of the people at the bottom. Now, what does that mean? That's the end of point two. What does that mean for us? Please don't misunderstand me when I, put, when I say this. So I'll, say it more, I'll say it slowly and carefully. God does many other things in the world besides care for the poor. And yet, it's so close to the heart of who he is. You know, grace to the powerless. Loving those who are weak. Loving those who know that they aren't strong. It's so close to who he is that his care for the poor is almost like his calling cards. He says, I want, you to, I want to be known as this. And even though we as Christians have many things to do in the world, we're supposed to be telling people about Jesus, we're supposed to be opening our mouths and, and spreading the word, and yet our church and Christian churches ought to be famous for their care for the poor. It ought to be on our calling card, as it were. It ought to be something that people know us for. Because when they see us sharing the faith, when they see us doing evangelism, the world only sees us recruiting people. But when they see us pouring ourselves out for the poor, they get a little glimpse of the glory of God. They have all these filters on so they can't see truly or rightly. But it's almost like caring for the poor shows them the character of God in a way that blasts through their filters. Very important. Are we famous for this? I don't think we are yet. So we must live a life of justice because God is a God of justice. But thirdly, how? How can we become people who reflect the God of justice through a life of justice? Now, there's a basic answer, and I'm going to show you it's not enough because we have to, there's a problem that goes with it. But the basic answer of this text is this. How do you become people of justice? Not just by discussing the God of justice, not just by talking about the God of justice, but by praising the God of justice, by worshiping and adoring the God of justice. Look at Psalm 146. Is this discussing the God of justice? No, it's praising him. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. 
the, the psalm is about praising God, and then it shows us as a God of justice. And the fact is, is that when you just tell yourself to do something because you ought to do it, that's fine. When you say, God's a God of justice, I need to do more justice in the world, fine, do it. Just because God says so, that's fine. But if you want to habitually be a person who does justice, if you want to be a person who is motivated to do it, something's got to happen deep in your heart. It's not enough just for you to kind of beat on your own head and, you know, and tell yourself to do it. Something's got to happen inside. And you know what it has to be? It has to be worship. Because ultimately, what it changes the affections of your heart in general, what changes the way in which you feel and the way in which you behave and is it, the thing that captures your imagination the most is what actually motivates and drives you. The thing that you praise the most. You know, the, the music you love the most and you tell other people to, to listen to it, or the books that you love the most and you tell other people to read it, those are books or music or what that's captured your imagination. What are you doing when you say, oh, read this, it's incredible. What you're doing is you're praising it, and it's captured your heart, and it's captured your imagination. And as a result, it's shaping who you are from the inside out. That's what's got to happen here. It's not enough just to believe in a God of justice. You've got to be excited. You've got to praise him. You've got to adore him for being a God of justice. And you have to work on yourself a little bit. It says, notice, praise the Lord, O my soul. Who's he talking to there? He's talking to himself. One commentator says what, what the psalmist is doing here is he is rousing himself to shake off apathy or gloom, using his mind and memory to kindle his emotions. And that's what you have to do. See, praise and worship isn't something you have to be totally passive over. You, you get to your heart. You speak to your heart. You uh, use mind and memory to kindle your emotion. You say, look at this God of justice. You've got to be so excited. You've got to be so moved by the God of justice it turns you into a person of justice. But we've got a problem here. See, it's one thing to be, get excited about a God of grace. Boy, who wouldn't be accept, excited by a God of grace? It's one thing to get excited and to worship a God of love or of mercy. Wow, who wouldn't be excited by that? A God of mercy, he just loves us and he forgives us. But a God of justice who demands that you love your neighbor as yourself or you're punished, that's what a God of justice is. Wait a minute, that's kind of scary. If you go to the Sermon on the Mount and you watch Jesus explain what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, and that's the kind of life God wants from you, it scares you. You know that place where he says uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, thou shalt not kill? Now, by the way, that's the, that's the ultimate form of injustice. <laughs> it's the ultimate failure to love your neighbor as yourself, to kill your neighbor. Okay? So Jesus says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. Right. Then he says, but I say unto you, and then, uh-oh, he says, but if you're angry at your neighbor, your brother, he actually says, he says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But if you're angry at your brother, and then he goes even further, and he says, and if you, or if you say to your brother, raka, and the word raka probably means you nobody. It's a, it's, a, it's a way of saying, he says, don't kill. Don't kill your neighbor. But don't be angry at your neighbor. And then he says, and don't take lightly, don't disdain, don't treat as insignificant, don't ignore your neighbor. Or, he says, all those things make you liable to hellfire. All those things are contributing to the injustice in the world. It's not just harming. It's not just unjust to harm the weak and the vulnerable, but to ignore them. And you do ignore them, and I ignore them. We're not loving our neighbor as ourselves. So how in the world can we worship? How can we adore a God of justice when we know what that means is that we should be condemned? 
How can you worship a God of justice when you know his justice means that you should be punished? It's pretty um, ironic that right in the middle of the passage, there's a place where it says, um, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, and then it says, the Lord who remains faithful forever. That's a word that means stands by you. He's faithful. He stands by you. It reminds us of 2 Timothy 4, uh, verses, uh, verse 16, where Paul was talking about the fact that, you know, he was in prison and he was on trial for his life. And at one point he says, everybody deserted me. At my last trial, think how scary that must be. Everybody deserted me. They were afraid. It, then he said, but the Lord stood by me. And Psalm 146 says, the Lord stands by you. But how can he stand by us? See, he frustrates, he brings the wicked to ruin. There's two parts to, judge, to justice. It's punishing the perpetrators and lifting up the oppressed. But the fact of the matter is, you know, until you begin to read the Bible and really get things straight, you have a, everybody tends to say, oh, I'm a victim, I'm a victim, until you see what God demands, until you read the Sermon on the Mount. And then you see, I am not loving my neighbor as myself, I am not doing justice, I am contributing to the misery of this world. And therefore, I deserve to be judged. So how can I worship a God of justice when I know that that justice means I should be condemned? Here's how. When Jesus Christ preached his first sermon, in Luke chapter 4, by the way, he chose Isaiah 61. Now, I remember, by the way, my first sermons when I was a 24-year-old new minister. And I tell you, I did not preach whatever, you know, I mean, there's a lot of ways that you choose what to preach. But I, in those first sermons, I chose texts that I thought would get across to people what the ministry here should be all about. They were kind of like calling card sermons, like, here's what the ministry here is going to be all about. Jesus chose Isaiah 61, and Isaiah 61 is, is another example. Isaiah 61 is talking about the Messiah who is going to come, and this is what he is going to say. This is an oracle in Isaiah 61 in which the Messiah is speaking according to the prophecy of Isaiah. And the Messiah says in Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, anointed me, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release of darkness for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. Does that sound familiar? So many of these passages that talk about the God of justice make the same list. It's very similar to Psalm 146 and many other places. In other, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for the captives, release of darkness, you know, for the prisoners. But at the end of this, Isaiah 61, the Messiah says, I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. There's the two sides of justice. Vengeance against the perpetrators and favor for the oppressed. And Jesus identifies with the God of the Old Testament, and he identifies with that, messi- that messianic oracle, and he says, I'm the Messiah, and I have come. And he reads the Isaiah scroll. He reads this Isaiah 61 and says, that's what I'm about. But guess what? When he gets to the place where it says, the year of the Lord's favor, he stops. He doesn't read the last part of the verse, which is, and the day of the vengeance of our God. See, Jesus says, I've come to do justice. And he says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to lift up the oppressed, the brokenhearted, the captives. But then he stops and he doesn't say, I'm here to bring the vengeance of our God. Now, why did Jesus do that? I mean, when you read Isaiah 61, it's very striking. Jesus stopped mid-verse. He read through all the justice part and he only brought out the good news. 
the oppressed, and he did not get to the bad news. See, doing justice is I'm going to lift up the oppressed and I'm going to punish the wicked. Jesus says, I've come to lift up the oppressed and stop. Why did he do that? Was he just trying to, you know, not be offensive? You know, some ministers don't like to talk about hell and judgment and things like that. Was he just trying not to be offensive? Of course not. Jesus, Jesus knew how to be offensive. <laughs> oh, yes, he did. No, no, then why did he stop? I'll tell you why he stopped. He didn't come to bring the vengeance of God. He came to bear the vengeance of God. He did not come to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment. The reason he could say, I have come to lift up the oppressed and not say, I've come to punish the wicked, was because he came to take the punishment that we, the wicked, deserve. Oh, he didn't just stand with us. He didn't just stand by us. When he went to the cross, Jesus Christ stood in for us. He took the punishment we deserve. The judgment came down on him. And because the judgment came down on him, we can be accepted. We can be loved. And he can stand by us forever, even when we fail, because our sins are forgiven. Now, what does that do? Here's what it does. The book of James says, if you have faith but you look at others without adequate resources and do nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? Faith, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. James is saying, yes, we're saved by faith. We're saved by faith in what God has done, what Jesus has done. We're saved by faith. But if you have been saved by faith, if you've been touched by the grace of God, you will care about the poor. If you've experienced grace, you will do justice. You'll look at the poor and you'll say, that was where I was, and yet God lifted me up. But here's what's going to be really unusual. Now, listen very carefully. This is my last point about how Christians in some ways are unique in the world. There are some people who don't care about justice at all. They're living for themselves. They say, yes, I know there's all kinds of suffering people out there. I can't be bothered or I can't do anything about it. Life is like that. You know, there we go. I'm just going to live for myself. So there's a lot of people that just don't care about justice. But then there's a whole lot of people that do. And, you know, there's different ways of getting big on justice. There's the conservative way, and the conservative way is rule of law, you know. And there's the liberal way, and the liberal way is we've got to do something about racism and injustice and poverty and hunger. Got to do something. Okay. So there's people who don't care about justice, and there's people who do. But I would like you to look carefully. There's a tendency for the people who really get big on justice to be really condemning, amazingly self-righteous, incredibly harsh, because they feel like I'm on the side of justice. And what's wrong with all you people out there, you apathetic people that don't care about these important issues? Have you ever noticed that? The people who care so much about justice very often are incredibly harsh, incredibly self-righteous. So there's people who don't care about justice. There's people who do care about justice. And then there's Christians. Because Christians look at the cross, and that tells you two things. One is the cross tells you that justice is so absolutely important that God could not set it aside that even his son had to die on the cross to satisfy the demands of justice. That means Christians know justice is, you, it cannot be set aside. It, it's, it's inviolable. God's justice is so important that Jesus had to die for us. But at the same time, we know when we look at the cross that you and I were the perpetrators of injustice. And the greatest injustice is that we have not treated God as we should. That's the ultimate injustice. God gives us everything, and we lived as if we belonged to ourselves. You know, it was, it's a, a form of cosmic treason. God gave us everything, and we lived as if we, you know, we belonged to ourselves. 
and God forgave us for that. The cross not only tells us justice is important, but it also tells us that you have been forgiven. And because you've been forgiven and because you know that you were a perpetrator of injustice and God forgave you, that sends you out into the world with a unique balance. On the one hand, justice is important. On the other hand, you'll be gracious. You'll be humble. You'll be kind. You won't get haughty against the people who are indifferent or who are perpetrators of injustice. You'll be insistent. You'll push. You see how different that is? The cross makes you care about justice, but it sends you out with a kind of merciful, gracious, humble attitude. If you learn how to praise and worship the God of justice now in light of the cross of Jesus Christ. See, there's the secret. How are you going to praise the God of justice? How are you going to adore the God of justice? By looking at the cross. Oh, Lord, thank you that you're so just that you couldn't set it aside. Thank you that you're so just that you have created a people to go out and do justice. Thank you that you're so just that in the end you're going to make everything right. But thank you that you're a God, such a God of justice and a God of love that you were willing to come and take our punishment yourself. Jesus Christ didn't come to bring God's vengeance. He came to bear it. And that, if you let that get to the heart of your heart, will turn you into agents of justice in the world gracious agents of justice. How can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us this wonderful, um, it just, it's just another psalm, it's just another part of the Bible. But every time we look, look at any part of your word deeply, we come away amazed. Amazed at the uniqueness, at the distinctness of the vision Amazed at how this is so different than anything else we hear anywhere else in the world. It has the ring of truth. We know it's from you. It shows us who you are. The gospel, Lord, just changes our hearts, changes our lives, will change the community around us if we let the gospel turn us into gracious agents of justice in the world. Help us to be that. Help us to do that through Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.
Hi, if any of you are looking to listen to past programs, you can find them on the Heart and Soul homepage. Go to www.heartandsoul.org and find the listen button and then click special programs. You can easily play this week's programs as well as past weeks. You can even download them to your computer. Otherwise, we can send you the past programs as CDs. Please contact us at 602-866-8999 or at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Thank you. Following is a program called If Anyone Wishes to Come After Me. Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston, your host of the series, If Anyone Wishes to Come After Me. During our last episode, we shared that if anyone wishes to come after Jesus, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Jesus. Denying oneself means his life no longer belongs to himself, and taking up his cross means receiving hatred and persecution in this world and walking the path of death. Today I would like to share about the terms and conditions of being a disciple of Jesus. Luke chapter 14 verses 25 through 27 says, Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is talking about the same subject as he did in Mark that we discussed last week. But this time, I would like us to think about to whom Jesus is speaking to. The Bible says large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, But who are these crowds? They were crowds who were following Jesus. Jesus is speaking to the crowds who were seeking, walking with, and following Jesus. What did he say to them? He begins by saying, If anyone comes to me, basically he is telling them that they are coming to him right now in order to come to Jesus some things need to be fulfilled. But what are those things that have to be fulfilled? Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus commanded us with saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So why is he telling us to hate our own family? This command is used as a hyperbole. For example, if person A is struggling with difficulties and person B is going through more hardship, I could tell person A that compared to person B, you should actually be happy. It's not because person A is actually in a happy situation, but since person B is going through a lot more hardships than person A, that if we compare the two, we can exaggerate and say that person A can be happy. Jesus told us to love our neighbors as ourselves, 
But he is also saying that our love towards Jesus should be so much greater than our love towards our neighbor that it can even seem as if we hate our neighbors. To what extent should we love Jesus in order to be seen that way? Let's say that I bought one or two gifts for my neighbor. That is clearly an expression of love. In the same way, then, how much should I give to Jesus to make it seem as if I hate the neighbor? Ten gifts? A hundred? A thousand? We probably can't come up with an exact number, but you understand the point. Basically, the verse is not telling us to hate our family. We should love them. However, we should love Jesus incomparably so much more. Yes, he is telling us to love him with all of our heart, with all our strength, and with all our mind. Without loving his whole personality wholeheartedly, we cannot follow Jesus. And as he had said, we cannot become his disciples. Do you think this is too much to ask? Do you think that there are too many things we need to give up in order to follow him? Perhaps you might wonder, do I really have to go that far? Jesus tells us in the next verse, which is Luke chapter 14, verses 28 through 33, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Jesus is telling us that it's not easy to decide to follow him. The decision should be made after making a precise calculation. It's as if someone who wants to build a tower calculates the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. It's just as how a king doesn't start a war without first thinking about the possibility of having victory. He would only go on a war if there's a better chance of winning. Otherwise, the king would ask for a compromise. In the same way, Jesus is telling us to follow him once we calculate and think about what we would earn, lose, or give up on once we decide to follow him. And if the outcome is that what we would earn would be so much more valuable than what we lose, then we should follow him. We should remember these words from Jesus. He doesn't bait us to come to him Instead, he tells us a list of things that doesn't seem too good and lets us decide if we still want to follow him. When you decided to follow Jesus, did you think about those things? Did you decide after making enough comparison between what you would have to lay down and what you would earn? Jesus says, None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Some people consider this verse as Jesus requiring us to give up our wealth. But when Jesus said our own possessions, he doesn't mean our wealth. 
We can possess anything in Christ, but nothing should possess us except Jesus. If our property owns us instead of us possessing the property, then problems arise. If I don't own my dream, but my dream owns me, then problems arise. Therefore, when Jesus says we should give up all of our possessions, he means nothing should own or control us. When you decide to follow Jesus, was the decision impulsively made? Was it emotionally made? A lot of us make a decision to follow Jesus impulsively or without having much thought about it beforehand. It means we did not take time to compare what we will gain and what we will lose before we made the decision to follow Jesus. This may be why a life of faith becomes hard. There wasn't much thought about the gain and the loss before we started the journey. From now on, let's think and calculate them. We can ask ourselves questions such as, what do I have to give up in order to follow Jesus? Would it be worth it to follow Jesus even after I lose them? I would like us to meditate on these questions over the next week and reflect on the answers God shows us within ourselves. This concludes today's message of If Anyone Wishes to Come After Me. I thank you for listening and may God richly bless you in the week ahead.
what a boy and his family from Palmdale Elementary went through. Being banned from sharing Bible verses with other students was very unfortunate. But at the same time, it can be a wake-up call for all Christians because we never know when it will be nationally banned to spread the words of God. It can come sooner than we actually believe. If that happens, then we will no longer be able to spread the words of God through recorded programs like this. We can even be banned from reading the Bible alone. It can lead to a ban on people getting together for church services. All this can happen if we do not compromise with the world's requests. This reminds me of what Apostle Paul wrote in his last letter to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 through 5 says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. What Apostle Paul told Timothy in this letter was to spread the words of God, whether the time is favorable or not. We are living in a world today, like Apostle Paul said, where people no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They follow their own desires and will look for teachers that will tell them whatever they want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after and only listen to things that will not help them in life. Because of how the world is today, you and I have been called to spread the gospel of Jesus to others. Take the time today to start what you have been called to do, to spread the words of Jesus. Whether the situation is favorable or not, spread the words of Jesus. This is your duty as a Christian. I keep hearing the words of Apostle Paul to Timothy. Preach the word. Be ready in season. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to meet all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week and God bless. Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see, wonderful words of life. Words of life and beauty, teach me faith and duty. Oh, so freely given, oh, 
Wonderful.